Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Before we get started, I want to say thank you to Jake Sledge and all of those who helped with the fall festival last night. We've had some great crowds in the past, but I think we surpassed all of them last night. That was a wonderful experience. Thanks for everyone who helped with that. I know that we had a lot of visitors, and some of them may be with us this morning. And if you are, thank you for being here. We hope that we can be a help to you, and uh, I hope that you will stick around after services and let us get to talk with you a little bit, tell you a little bit about who we are. We love this congregation. We are a, a growing, vibrant congregation. It's an exciting time to be a part of this, and we want everyone to experience this with us. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're in a series called One Word, and the one word this morning is grief. And I would say this, you know, as a minister, I deal with death a lot. I mean a lot. And I'm grateful for that. I really am. I'm grateful for the fact that I deal with death so often because death has a way of refocusing you like nothing else can. I mean, why do people come to Christ later in life? Why do people who have never opened a Bible or darkened the doors of a church building do so when they find out that they have a terminal disease? Why is it that people who are lying on their deathbed and reflecting on their life that they've lived for so long outside of Christ decide that they need to do something different. Because death has a way of refocusing us like nothing else can. And when you are living in response to your destiny, it changes how you look at life. And death is the destiny of every single one of us. And our destiny should shape how we live. Something that I think Solomon talks about in ways that are rather morbid, but also very beautiful. Look with me, starting in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon says, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. For the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn brushes under a pot, so is the laughter of of the fool, and this too is futility. Who talks like this? Who expresses themselves like this and puts it down on paper for people to read and to listen to? I'll tell you who, a wise man. As you know, Solomon was the wisest man on the face of the earth at this time. And Ecclesiastes is his diary, it's his memoir. There was a time when Solomon was told by God to ask for whatever he wished, and instead of for asking to win the lottery, instead for asking, instead of asking for wealth and riches and 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 fame, and all of those kind of things, Solomon asked for wisdom to lead God's people, to rule over God's people. And I picture God in that moment like a proud father, a tear streaming down his face, saying, that's, that's my boy. And because Solomon was so selfless in his request, God goes ahead and gives him wealth and fame and possessions and women and all those kind of things. Of course, he took that for himself, right? But he gives him all these things. 
And this wise man did some pretty foolish things in response to having all the wealth and fame and possessions. And so he gets to the end of his life. And what do we do when we get to the end of our lives? We reflect, don't we? And so that's what Solomon is doing here. He's reflecting on a life that was lived pretty foolishly at times. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, this is how he starts his memoir. Meaningless. Meaningless. And utter meaningless. Gee, Solomon, why don't you tell us how you really feel, right? But obviously, Solomon has come to the end of his life. He's reflecting, and what he has come to, as far as his conclusion, is that at the end of the day, wealth, possessions, fame, all those kind of things, they're all meaningless. They don't matter. What really matters is, did you live for God? Go back to chapter 7. Verse 1, he says, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What do we do when we find out that we're going to have a child? We get excited. There's excitement about that. We throw a shower, a baby shower. We, we, we go to the doctor. We make doctor visits on regular occasions so that we can look at the ultrasound, so that we can hear the baby's heartbeat. We may find out the gender. And then we gather a group of friends together, perhaps, and we have a gender reveal party. It's a time of celebration when you're going to have a child, when you're going to bring a baby into the world. But what do we do when someone dies? We console them and we try to help them move on as quickly as possible. We don't want them to dwell on that. We don't like to see our loved ones sad. And so we do our best to try to get them to move past the hurt and the heartache. If we're the ones that is dealing, that is dealing with the grief, then we do our best to stay busy so we can move past it as quickly as possible so we, won't, we don't have to think about it. And Solomon says, no, don't do that. Solomon's talking about how it's good that we reflect. It's good that we experience grief in certain situations. You ought to tell people all the time, have fun at my funeral, I won't be there. What if we celebrated death the way that we do birth? Because Solomon's saying, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, of course, the only caveat to that is if you are a child of God, right? If you lived your whole life, just building up you know, possessions and wealth and, 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 and fame, then you're going to die with that and you're going to really die with nothing in the end. But if you are a child of God, if you're someone who fears God, if you're a Christian, then you die. It's a celebration. What if we celebrated death the way that we celebrate birth? What if at the funeral we had a party? I requested that at my funeral you have a, you know, some candies on my chest. Come by and look at, oh. Yeah. Enjoy it. Don't feel sorry for me because I won't be having a, a bad time. I am confident of where I'm going because the Bible tells me that. What if we celebrated death the way that we celebrate birth? After stating that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth, Solomon says that it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. Show up at a funeral. Look around, see the people that are mourning and grieving and take inventory and remember that you are going to be the one in the casket before too long. At some point, you will be lying in that casket and people will be paying their last respects to you. They're going to be mourning and grieving over you. If you live your life as one big party, then at the end, everyone's going to be sad because no one's going to have hope about your eternal existence. 
So Solomon says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. People go to a party to forget. They live it up while they can here on earth so that they don't have to think about the things that truly matter. And depending on what kind of party it is, there are many things that are done in excess that are immoral. But you go to a house of mourning. You go to a funeral home. You go to that funeral and you see what death does. And you understand that death is your destiny and you need to live in view of your destiny. Solomon doesn't say that's fun. He just says it's better. He's saying it's good for you. It's good for you to go to a house of mourning and to think about the day of your death because there's more to gain from that than going to a feast. How many of you, every time you make a major decision in life, you run it through the filter of death? Rather morbid way of thinking, but it may be good for us to do so. How many of you, before you make a major decision in life, you think about, I'm going to die, so... I'm going to die, so will this even matter? Is this something that deserves that much attention from me? I'm going to die, therefore. Think about this. Is the way that I'm currently living going to get me to heaven? Will I see my heavenly Father at the end of this life the way that I'm living it? Filter your life through death. Solomon says, think about those things. Think about this. Think about your own death. Think about your own funeral. Think about those who are mourning and grieving for you. Will it also be a time of celebration? Will there be hope in your death? You know, what we do when somebody passes away, or even when we talk about our own death, we'll be talking about that maybe if, if you're getting later in life, and you talk about it with your family, and you talk about arrangements. What inevitably happens is someone goes, oh, let's not talk about that. I don't really want to talk about this. Solomon says, don't do that. Talk about it. It doesn't need to be the only conversation that you have, but it needs to be talked about. You need to be thinking about these things. The wise person spends time thinking about death in their lives and the way that they live so that they consider the fate of their soul. He continues, sorrow is better than laughter. I don't know that I believe that, do you? I mean, I'd much rather laugh hysterically than to be mourning and grieving. But Solomon is not condemning happiness or joy. He's simply saying that sorrow and grief can be good things. Sorrow and grief can serve a healthy purpose because they remind us that this life isn't all that there is. Sorrow and grief remind us that God is in control. Sorrow and grief remind us that we're not going to make it out of here alive. They remind us that we all have an expiration date, and we tend to try to avoid sorrow and grief at all costs. And Solomon says, don't do that. Don't avoid it at all costs. That it's a good thing that you reflect. That it's a good thing that you have grief. It's natural. It's normal. Somebody passes away that you're close to, even though you know where they're going, even though you have hope in their future that it will be in heaven, it's okay to grieve and to mourn. That's perfectly natural for any human being. It's needed. But then he writes, It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of fools. Solomon is the wise man he's talking about here. He's saying it's better that you listen to me than listening to the song of fools. 
Why is it better that you listen to Solomon? Because he was a wise man that did some really foolish things. And he's trying to say, I did it. I experienced it. I lived it. Don't be like me. Don't make the same mistakes that I did. I had the wealth and the fame and the possessions and, and the women, and it was not worth it. I lived for those things, and it wasn't worth it. Learn from me. We could sum up Solomon's words in a message like this. You're going to die, so don't do it like I did. That's his message. But look around you. Look around in our culture, and what do you see? What surrounds you? You see a whole lot of people who prefer the song of fools rather than the rebuke of the wise, right? You think about it. You look around our culture. You, you don't have to look very far, and you see a vast number of people who prefer the song of fools. Reminds me of that song, Joy to the World, right? You know that song? Jeremiah was a bullfrog, was a good friend of mine. Never understood a single word he said, but I helped him drink his wine, and he always made some mighty fine wine, singing joy to the world, all the boys and girls, joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea, joy to you and me. Maybe not the song you're thinking of, but I mean, Three Dog Night had a, had a way of capturing what our world is all about, right? The rest of that song talks about loving the ladies, being a high flyer, a rainbow rider. It's a worldly joy, and that's how so many in our world live. They prefer the song of fools. All I want to do is have some fun. I got a feeling I'm not the only one. Let's make the most of the night like we're going to die young. Baby, just for the night, you my soulmate. Let's go crazy, crazy, crazy till we see the sun. I know we only met, but let's pretend it's love. And I could go on and on. Much of our culture prefers the song of fools rather than rebuke of a wise man. Because we just want to live it up until we die. We want momentary satisfaction that comes from instant gratification. And Solomon says, that's not wise. I did that. Learn from me. Because in the end, that gets you nothing. It's just a striving after the wind. The very same things that Solomon acquired during his illustrious life are the same things that we seek in our lives so often. But there's one hard truth that we have to learn, that we have to grasp before it's too late. And that is, you can live it up, but eventually you're going to have to live it down. Eventually the debt comes due, right? And you're going to have to pay. There was a wise Chinese man that lived on the Mongolian border. And he had this prized, beautiful mare. And one day it hopped the fence and went over into enemy territory. He lost his beautiful mare and some of his friends came by and they said, oh, that, that's really bad news. We're sorry. And he goes, how do you know it's bad news? Maybe good news. The next day, he saw his beautiful white mare return with a beautiful black stallion. And he puts them both in the enclosure and his friends come by and they say, wow, what a, what a beautiful horse. Congratulations. This is good news. He goes, how do you know it's good news? Could be bad news. The next day, his son gets on that black stallion. He tries to ride it. It throws him. He breaks his leg. His friends come by again. They say, oh, that, that, I'm sorry to hear about your son. That's terrible news. He goes, how do you know it's terrible news? Maybe good news. Don't really want to be like around someone like that very often, do you? And so the next day, it is discovered that China and Mongolia are going to war. 
And the Chinese army is going around recruiting and listing all able-bodied men, but this man's son can't join the army. He's got a broken leg. But every man from their village that the army recruits, they all die in battle. Not this man's son, because he had a broken leg. And the point of the, the, the story is that sometimes what you see as good is actually bad, and what you see as bad is actually good. Grief isn't always bad. It has a very negative connotation in our culture, but it isn't always bad. We tend to think it is. We do our best to suppress it. We do our best to avoid it at all costs. And Solomon says, don't do that. Go ahead, get acquainted with grief. It would do you a lot of good to do so. What's most desirable may not always be most profitable. And what's profitable may not always be what's most desirable. You think about this. You have a successful marriage. You've been married 65 years and you stick your chest out and you pride about that, as you should. You were very successful in business and it's allowed you to retire with a beautiful home, your dream home. And now you and your spouse sit out on your front porch and you look at the, the lush green grass in your yard and, and you, you think with pride about all that you've accomplished in life. You have three kids, one of them's a doctor, one of them's a lawyer, one of them's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And you brag on your kids, you brag about your life. Money is not an issue and you just sit back and you enjoy it until one day one of you passes away. The spouse that's left has to be moved into assisted living because he or she can't live by themselves. Your estate is tied up in court. Maybe the kids are bickering over what part is theirs. Your business gets sold to somebody who doesn't care about all the blood, sweat, and tears that you poured into it to build it to where it was. Now what really matters? Maybe that spouse that's in assisted living, maybe their health is declining. Maybe perhaps they're lying on their deathbed. Do you think they're caring about what they're wearing at that point? Do you think they care about the money that's in the bank? Do you think they care about any of those things that they once took so much pride in? I think that's kind of the message that Solomon is trying to get us to wrap our minds around. Character is better than luxury. Death is better than birth. Mourning is better than feasting. Sorrow is better than laughing. Rebuke is better than praise. If it brings you clarity, if it helps you to understand what's better, if it stops you dead in your tracks and forces you to take inventory of what's most important, if it does all those things, then yes, death, mourning, sorrow, rebuke, they're all better. Because as we have said so many times throughout this series, life is about what? Preparation for eternity. Don't get lost in all the other stuff in this life. At the end of the day, all that really matters, as Solomon says, is what? Fear God and keep his commandments. Because the only thing you take with you when you die is your soul. That's it. Heaven is won or lost right here, right now. And if grief, if sorrow, if those kind of things prepare you, Whatever it takes, it's worth it. Have you noticed how over and over again in the Bible, God tried to get his people focused? You see that over and over again, especially the Old Testament, you see God doing whatever it takes to try to get his people to refocus. They'd go along and they'd be doing so well for a while and then they would fall off and then he'd have to come and bring them back and refocus them. What tactic did he use so often to refocus them? You think about that? What did he use so often to bring his people back into compliance? I'll answer for you. Grief. 
You see that over and over again, that God used grief in a benevolent way to bring his people back into compliance. I'll give you an example. Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So due to their disobedience, Israel is under oppression. Of the 350 years between the death of Joshua till Samuel the prophet, about 100 years were spent in disloyalty to God. The book of Judges contains seven cycles involving sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. Needless to say, it was a sad time for the people of Israel, and it was all because of their own uh, silliness and foolishness. But God's actions were as much benevolent as they were anything else because God loved his people. If there's one thing that we can take away from all of this is that God did not give up on his people. He refused to let them live in oppression. He was using those refocusing moments to bring them back. He had a plan for them. And so the plan, that bigger picture, was to get them to see it as well, which wasn't always easy. And so many times he would raise up a prophet to call them to the carpet. In the case of judges, he raised up a judge to lead them back into compliance. He raised up an enemy sometimes to sweep in and to, like the Midianites, to, to pillage and to take away everything, to turn their eyes back to him. It was in this grief that Israel realized just how much they needed God. I'll give you another example. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 9. We see the people grieving over their sins. Notice verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Now that's a sign of mourning and grieving. You probably knew that. But then notice the response of the people. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Do you like long prayers? Probably not. But what follows after this is a very lengthy prayer. Probably one of the most beautiful prayers recorded in the Bible. We won't read it all, but just notice verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. In the grip of grief, they cried out, and God was there to rescue them. It was in the midst of misery that God used that moment to refocus them and get their eyes back to where they needed to be. Now, I'm not suggesting that God has inflicted grief on you so that he can bring you back into compliance. 
The only reason that I can say that God used grief to refocus his people is because it's recorded for me in the Bible. And when I can read it on paper and know that the Holy Spirit is behind it, then I can go with that. I don't believe that God is necessarily causing you grief just to refocus you. I believe that that can happen in your grief, but I don't believe that God gives you cancer. I don't believe that God kills babies because he needs them in heaven more. I don't believe all that. But I do believe this, that God is not through with you. Whatever you're dealing with this morning, I believe that God is not through with you. And I believe that there can be good that comes from even the most devastating situation. I don't believe that the situation itself, no matter how terrible and grim and devastating, I don't believe that that's good. There's nothing good about a 13-year-old girl getting raped. But I do believe that God can help us in our time of grief that those times can make us stronger and draw us closer to Him. And I don't believe that God is done with you. You are still here for a reason. Do you know what that reason is? I would encourage you to figure that out. I've had older folks ask me, why does God still have me here? Why? I, I can't figure out why I'm still around. Well, I'd encourage you to figure that out. Because God is keeping you here for a reason, right? You are still here for a reason. What is that reason? Well, we all have the same purpose to glorify Him, right? To share the good news of the gospel, to bring as many people to Christ as we can, to bring as many people to heaven with us as we can. We've got to see the bigger picture here. Amid all the hurts, the disappointments, the disease, the death, the heartache, the depression, there is a reason why you're still here. What part do you play in God's bigger picture? Notice verses 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Grief is a guarantee. If you live long enough, you're going to experience grief. I'm not happy about this, but it's true. This life is full of highs and lows, ups and downs. Hopefully you have more peaks than you do valleys. But Solomon says no matter what life throws at you, don't lose sight of God. Stay focused. These are the days that God has ordained. Make the most of them. Whatever life throws at you, make the most of them. My son has played sports ever since he was young, ever since he was four years old. And ever since that time, I would tell him everything is fuel. Everything is fuel. If you win, use it as fuel to motivate you to be even better. If you lose, use that as fuel to motivate you to be even better. You're criticized when you're benched by the coach, whatever. Use that as fuel to help you be better. And I would say the same thing to you. I know you're hurt. I know you're reeling. I know you're, some of you are dealing with things that are beyond comprehension. Please use it as fuel. Allow it to motivate you to get closer to God and to prepare for the life that is far greater than this one. This life isn't best. This isn't best. We want what's best for our loved ones. We want what's best for us. You know what it is? Not here. It's heaven. It bothers me when we say, well, you know, we lost so-and-so. We didn't lose them. When you lose something, you don't know where they're at. You're a child of God. We know exactly where you're at. Use it as fuel and just don't quit. Don't quit. Sounds simple, but that's, I think that's what Solomon is saying. Don't quit. 
No matter what you deal with in life, no matter how bad it gets, just don't quit. Keep fighting. Consider a postage stamp. You know what a postage stamp is? A postage stamp has one job, and it sticks to it until it gets to where it's going. And that's what I encourage you to do. Stick to it until you get to where you're going. Remember Paul's words, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I stick to that one thing until I get to where I'm going. Do the same. Allow grief to be fuel. Whatever you're dealing with in this life, just don't quit. Keep fighting. And if you need our help, let us help you. If we can pray with you, if we can love on you and support you, maybe you're dealing with the grief of sin and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Whatever it is, understand that God has you here for a reason. You better get in touch with that reason and understand that it's going to end at some point. Where will you be when it's all over? David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you this morning, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing?